Welcome back, beloved. Today we're continuing our Revelation series. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. These are just so chock full of uh, just, you, you have to read the whole Bible just to understand these verses. You've got to go back to Numbers. We're going to be back in Exodus a little bit. We're going to be jumping all around Scripture. It's really cool. And uh, this letter is to the compromising church. This is the letter to the church at Pergamum. Like I've been saying, if you've been following this series, these letters are seven letters to seven real churches at the time, about 2,000 years ago. That being said, they're also prophetic. They clearly show the types of churches nowadays. You could, for example, be at a compromising church, or you could be a compromising individual believer, right? You could be uh, like Laodicea. You could be a lukewarm believer, or you could be a fervent, zealous believer, right? Or a fervent, zealous church. And so with that being said, uh, you know, these videos, we're going to explain the history a little bit of what was going on at the time. But we really only want to spend a few minutes on that. We want to talk about how can these verses, you know, where do we see this happening today? Where is their compromise in the church today? Or how can these scriptures really come to life, you know, right in front of us? Um, that being said, I'm going to start just by reading the text, and then I'm going to go into the history of Pergamum just a little bit to really set the scene for us. And so starting with Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I'm highlighting the words that I'm really going to be digging into with you guys, okay? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Whew, that's a big statement. We want to unpack that. Yet you hold fast my name, his name, the name of Christ, who he is, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, that means martyr, martus, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So we have Satan throne and where Satan dwells. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Goes on to say, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. I want to really drill into that today. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So someone's teaching the church, uh, to commit idolatry and sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. Um, I went over that in my other video uh, as well. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so let's go over the history of Pergamum a little bit, try and just get a quick understanding. Okay, here's just a picture from Google. There was a massive amphitheater there. This is the time of the church. There is emperor worship. There are tons of false gods. This would have been a very busy city-like sector, very wealthy, okay? And so just so you can see it, it's on the right side of the Aegean Sea. This is how uh, the writer probably wrote and delivered all the letters to these seven churches, right? You can see it very straightforward there. And today, Pergamum is modern Bergama in Izmir, Turkey, right? This is just regular Apple Maps, right? So very, very straightforward. So with that being said, that's just some of the, you know, 
30,000 foot view facts on uh, Pergamum. Um, we're going to get into the history a little bit as we go. So let's start unpacking the verse. Okay, so to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, the leader of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I want to identify who's sending this letter. I don't want to go over just yet what that sharp two-edged sword does. But obviously, these are the seven letters from Jesus to the church. So the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, we're told in Ephesians, okay, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. 700 years before Christ is born in Isaiah 49, you get a picture of this coming servant, okay? And, and God says in his word way before Christ is born, listen to me, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar, from all over the earth. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He has made mention of my name. There are things written about Jesus, the Messiah, over a thousand years before he's born. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So here we're connecting the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, with the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. It's the same God. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hands, he has hid me. He's made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. We know Jesus was manifested. The Son of God was born at just the right time that God had predestined, okay? So with that being said, we know who wields the sharp sword. It's God. We know who wields the sharp sword. It's Jesus who is God, right? It's the Son of God. And so that being said, now we're going to move on. We're going to get back to what that sharp sword does uh, a couple verses down because he brings it up again. So now Revelation 2.13, big statement. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Satan's throne is here and he's claiming that Satan dwells here. And I want to just bring up a few verses to dispel some myths, right? Going all the way back to Job. The Lord speaks to Satan and he says, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We need to remember, just like Peter said, be sober minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is not in hell or the lake of fire. The devil has never been to hell or the lake of fire. One day in the future, he will go to hell for a thousand years, Sheol, the underworld. He will be chained up during the millennial kingdom. Then he will be thrown into the lake of fire before we go on to the new heavens and new earth. But from the time in the Garden of Eden to this very second you're listening, the devil prowls around on earth, possibly in the galaxies as well. Uh, but specifically, he is on earth looking for who he may devour. So I just want to, that, that's really important. But when it's talking about Satan's throne, here's what most people think he's talking about here. And I want to go over it. Obviously, there was many, many false gods in Rome at this time, huge problems for the church. However, there was one problem for the early church that really kind of stood out uh, among many. And so this is what most people think God is speaking about when he says the throne of Satan. This is real. It's in a museum in Germany. I'll pull that up in a second. But this throne, it was excavated in the 1800s, was delivered here. This throne was the temple of Zeus Soter. Soter means savior. 
Now, Zeus is incredibly interesting. He's mentioned seven, several times in the Bible. That being said, Zeus, when Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed the Jewish people, you know, most of them, he, he came in, he conquered Jerusalem, he slaughtered a pig, you know, in the Holy of Holies. I mean, he really uh, did what Daniel said. It was a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist is going to do by setting up that final idol. But he actually, Antiochus Epiphanes, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, he set up an idol of Zeus. Okay, and that's what Daniel called the abomination at the time. But this throne was a temple of Zeus, Soter, and Pergamum. It was the center of emperor worship. That's really key. You really got to understand emperor worship uh, during the days of Jesus. At this temple in Pergamum, the people expressed their allegiance to the emperor. They would have to burn incense to him, do other things like that. And so I know I told you I'd show you. This is where it is today. Literally, there's a Pergamum museum. So this is a real object. And this is what most people think God is saying where he says the throne of Satan. And I agree with this interpretation. And here's the reason why. Emperor worship is very similar to one day the world is being prepared for Antichrist worship, right? It's very straightforward. Pride, you know, human beings are overcome with pride. The more success we get, especially when we're unbelievers, you get more and more and more prideful, right? Constantly throughout the Bible, when a leader overcomes a massive population, just think about how much pride people are praising him. They're saying, oh, you're doing so good and they begin to call themselves God. It happens time and time again. The king of Nebuchadnezzar started doing it. God rebukes the king of Tyre uh, in either Isaiah or Ezekiel because he says, I am like God. And that's what Satan from the garden wants us to think, that we are like gods, but we're not. The creator is separate from his creation in the sense that he is holy, right? He is the creator, we are the created, okay? And the world is being set up where one day, we will worship a man claiming to be God, even though he won't. So obviously, this, this throne of Satan, this emperor worship, posed a huge problem for Christians. There were many martyrs made because they just simply wouldn't worship the emperor, which was required to do. There's also another false god. I want to go over it very quick. There was the temple of Asclepius, okay? And literally, you would go there, and non-venomous snakes would crawl over you all night. This is literally a, you know, an excavated statue you see on the bottom here, he's holding a rod. That's called the rod of Asclepius. And there's a snake that would go around it. And you would go there. These snakes would crawl all over you after you just worshiped the emperor and you would be healed. Today, if you look at an ambulance, you're going to see this rod of Asclepius. The World Health Organization, you see the rod of Asclepius. So it is pretty amazing how false gods are all around us in a sense, right? Like these things are, are brought down through the generations. But this is what was going on at Pergamum. So obviously for a, a, a Jesus-loving church, these are some huge issues. And so now I just want to unpack Antipas just a little bit. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, that's the word martus, that's where we get the word martyr, because so many of them were martyred. And so Antipas, Christian tradition, we don't know any, you know, really much anything about him, but Christian tradition holds that there were people sacrificing to pagan gods in a huge bronze bowl. There'd be a fire underneath the bowl, they'd put their sacrifice in there, and boil water, and it would all burn up, and, and, and you know that was their sacrifice. Well, Antipas 
would not do that, obviously. He was faithful to Jesus Christ's name, even to death, okay? He did not deny the name, is what Revelation says. And so Antipas was put in this bowl. The fire never touched him, but he was literally boiled alive. And it's it's terrifying, but that's that's what glorified God, right? It, it glorified God. Antipas was a faithful witness. He had truly been pulled out of the world by God. And so when you're understanding martyrs, he went to his death nobly, he died for the faith, and he's going to have eternal bliss with Christ. And, and those burning him may be, and most likely will be, in the lake of fire forever. And so just unpacking that verse, just so we get a clear understanding of it, now it makes so much more sense. I know where you dwell, Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, but you hold fast my name, the name of God, who he is, as he's revealed himself to us in scripture, not who we want him to be. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So in those days, it was probably that the church came under tribulation, right? Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So with that being said, I want to talk about denying God's name, denying his faith. First Timothy, a couple of verses I want to bring up. First Timothy says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, right? So we have to understand that there's rules that God has put on us. They do not save us, but if we don't follow them, we're evidencing that we don't really have true faith. We don't really believe in the all-powerful God who's revealed himself in his word. And so one of the ways we do that is not providing for a household. It goes on to say in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We'll reign with Jesus if we endure, if we disown him. He will also disown us. This is scary language, but if you've truly been saved, you will not disown Christ. That's not it. You might be like Peter. You might fall away. You might make a mistake. You will always be restored. You will always come back to Christ. Peter died as a martyr one day, right? And so if we disown him, he will also disown us. So we cannot disown Christ. We're warned at the time of the end, there's going to be many people that have a form of godliness but they deny its power, and then we're to have nothing to do with those types of people. We want to witness to them. We want to show them what true faith look like. What true faith looks like. Excuse me. So moving on, Revelation chapter two, fourteen and fifteen. This is really going to be the crux of the teaching. We're going to talk about this quite a bit. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to stop right there. False teaching is a major theme in all seven letters to all seven churches. Doesn't mean every, every letter has you know, a condemnation for false teaching. What I'm saying is there's only seven letters. Within those seven letters is everything Jesus wants to say to his church. So they're incredibly important. And within those seven letters, there's maybe, depending on how you categorize them, 15 to 20 statements, right? It can be a rebuke for something bad or an admonition for something good. 15 to 20. That being said, of those 15 to 20, you will find six to seven, one third, 33%, maybe more, uh, are talking about false teaching. So a major theme in the communication of what Jesus wanted to tell his churches and believers throughout all history is to watch out for false teaching. <laughs> this is a huge theme. So that being said, uh, I'm going to just get into the teachings of Balaam, okay? Balaam who taught Balak. Balak was the king of the Moabites. He hired Balaam, a false prophet, to curse the Israelites, okay? 
But Balaam put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So this is, we got to unpack this. We got to make sure we understand this. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, right? Practice idolatry and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, we went over it in our other video, okay? That was turning the grace of God into a license to sin, right? Exchanging liberty, being set free from sin, to license, a license to sin. This is what Balaam taught as well, but Balaam is really fascinating, right? It's in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, and then separately Numbers 31, just four chapters, is the entire story of Balaam. And yet, Jesus brings up this character when warning his church. Not only Jesus, but the Holy Spirit through Jude writes, woe to them, talking about false teachers. They've taken the way of gain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Okay, now another, I mean, you guys know God wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Yes, Jude wrote it also, right? It was fully Jude and fully the Holy Spirit. But now the Holy Spirit twice brings up Balaam rushing for profit into Balaam's error. So whatever Balaam's error is, it has to do with wanting profit, worldly gain. Finally, Peter brings him up three times now. The Holy Spirit brings up Balaam. Peter's talking about false teachers. He's saying they will arise among you. Not they might, that they will. And he says false teachers have left the straight way. They're not on the narrow path. They've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, okay? Now, I want to stop right here and just show you really quick. I made a video. You can go look at it if you have time. It's just 20 minutes. It was, did Balaam prophesy about Jesus? And so I'm just going to explain what happens. Really 30,000 foot view. Balaam was a false prophet, okay? Balak was the king of the Moabites, and they were terrified about Israel. So the king of the Moabites hires Balaam to curse the Israelites, okay? Balaam, literally, supernaturally, by God's power, is not able to curse them. God puts the words in Balaam's mouth, and even though Balaam is not a believer, he just prophesies correctly, and he actually prophesies blessings for Israel, and he even gives a messianic prophecy. It's truly amazing to see the sovereignty of God. However, when that didn't work, he devised another plan. Okay, very straightforward. So he does that. He can't curse the Israelites. The king is mad. But when Balaam failed to curse the Israelites, he devised a plan to have the daughters of Moab seduce the men. This led to sexual immorality and idolatry. Okay, Numbers 25 goes over this. I'm going to go over it with you guys. It says, and this is written, you know, so far in the past. I love quoting from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This is written 3,500 years ago. But it's written for us as the church to study today. So this is the story of what happened after Balaam could not curse Israel. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So God's people are committing apostasy. They're turning on God. So Israel yoked, joined himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord says to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. So God takes false teaching very, very seriously, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. It goes on to say later on, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down. Well, well why? Check this out. 
He says, they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of pure. So when we're talking about a false teacher, we're not talking about someone who just gets doctrine wrong, or they believe God's sovereignty, or maybe they don't believe in the millennial kingdom. Um, I believe in God's sovereignty and the millennial kingdom. I'm just saying they might have a different viewpoint on something. When we're talking about false teachers, we're typically talking about people who convince true believers to sin. They lead them away or they just lead them into nonsense. False teachers are in an entirely different category than um, tares, right? There's the wheat, the believers, and the tares. There's the good fish and the bad fish, right? A non-believer should be more than welcomed and loved and graciously included at church. Uh, they should not seek to drive them out, right? That being said, the goal is that they will be converted through the true teaching. Okay, a false teacher is something completely separate, and we're told all throughout Scripture to handle them completely separately. We're supposed to uh, get them out of the church, challenge them. Now, if they repent, that's great, but that's not typically the case. Okay, so we have here this story. Okay, now I want to go on to see what God did back in that day. So Balaam, uh, on Balaam's advice, Numbers records on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. They committed, you know, sacrifices with idols, prostitution, sexual immorality, all sorts of things. And so the plague came against the congregation of the Lord, a huge plague. People were dying. And God says to Moses, kill every male among the little ones. He's talking about the Moabites, kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. This is serious, serious judgment from the Lord. He takes false teaching incredibly serious. So we don't want to play around with this. If you're a teacher or a pastor or an evangelist or anyone in the church, this is a serious matter. Okay. And that's what I think we have to learn from Balaam. I would highly recommend go read Numbers 22 to 25 and then 31. You'll know everything you need to know about the story. Okay. But now I want to start answering the question, deeper questions. Why does God allow this? Why does God allow this? Why did God allow Balaam? He could have just destroyed Balaam. In fact, he shut him up with a donkey. <laughs> I always love that. I say, if, uh, if you read the story, a donkey spoke and shut up Balaam, uh, the false prophet. And I, I want to give you guys an encouragement in your church. If you feel like you can't do anything against false teachers, if God can use a donkey to shut one up, God can use you to challenge one as well. So be encouraged. But why, why does God allow this? Why didn't God just destroy Balaam? Why does God allow those who come into the church thousands of years later to teach us this way and lead, lead people astray? And let me explain. He does this to test us. Going all the way back to the law, Deuteronomy 13, it's so abundantly clear. God's talking about false prophets, false teachers. He says, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or the wonder spoken takes place. And the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you. So here we have in the book of the law, Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, clearly an example. God tests us whether or not to find out whether we love him with all our heart, with all our soul. Now we're going to make mistakes. We might fall into false teaching or meet a false teacher and kind of like feel nervous and agree with them. Like we're going to make mistakes, but you should be looking at this the next time you see something clear that, okay, this is a test from God. I need to be faithful to him. Let me be a Berean, dig into the word, word of God, find out what God really feels about this and then go from there. 
But this is why he allows it to happen, okay? It, it, he goes on to say, it's the Lord your God you must follow, him you must fear, keep his commands and obey him, serve him, hold fast to him. Just the same terminology with Antipas, hold fast to my name. He says that prophet or dreamer of dreams must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God. So we've talked about why God allows this to happen. And remember, I'm just a man. I can, I, I'm never going to give you the full story. God allows this to happen for many reasons. He does it to test true believers. He might even do it to judge non-believers that they, as they reject him more and more, they turn into a false teacher. So those are some, you know, from scripture, some of the reasons I believe God allows this. It's to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's trying us, he's testing us, and he's refining us so that we grow in the knowledge of him. But now I want to talk about something really important for the church nowadays, because the church, specifically in America, is totally given over to many of these teachings. And I want to talk about why does this happen. And the answer is very clear. It is supply and demand. Why do false teachers come into the church? It is supply and demand. Let me explain that. Second Timothy, this is a prophecy Paul gave to Timothy 2,000 years ago. You're literally watching this prophecy come true every single day. Okay, God's word is settled in the heavens. This is what was coming 2,000 years ago, and it is so clearly here today. Check this out. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It will be too offensive. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. Heap up, that word means, teachers for themselves to suit their own passions, their own desires, their own lust. And let me explain what's happening in America right now. It's so abundantly clear if you just get in the word, you pray for discernment, it breaks my heart, but this is what's happening, okay? On the left here, start on the left. There are many, many people that have a desire for the wrong Jesus, okay? I'm seeing the LGBTQ, the gay affirming Jesus. Everybody really loves him right now. Baby Jesus, wrath not included, that's maybe you can call that Catholic Jesus, right? The God who is, God is love, right? But love isn't God. So God isn't only love. God is also holy, true, wrathful, pure, so many different things. But baby Jesus, wrath not included, people are going crazy for him right now. Social justice Jesus, that's the most common, you know, the most popular Jesus in America right now. I saw transgender Jesus the other day, broke my heart. There's blessings Jesus, which is essentially just Santa Claus. You know, I can do all things through Christ. Now help me get a new car, right? There's my Jesus, right? Just you can have your own Jesus for me, uh, for you. I can have my Jesus. Do not tell anyone about him. Don't preach the gospel. Don't, you know, put your views. Don't make anyone feel uncomfortable about how they behave. On the right, you have the Jesus of scripture, the way we don't get to choose who Jesus is. I don't get to choose who Jesus is. The Jesus that I wanted before I was born again, he was the Jesus. I mean, I would just sin like crazy. And the second after I sin, I'd pray a quick prayer and go on with my day. That's not the Jesus of scripture. That's not true repentance. I wasn't truly born again. I had no idea who Jesus was. Isaiah 45 re reveals Jesus, reveals the true God, that he is a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and this is really clear, there is no other. All these other Jesuses aren't Jesus. All, all these other Jesuses are essentially idols. It's idolatry. The Jesus of scripture, he's the one we don't want to hear about. And so this is what's happening in America, in the woke church, in prosperity gospel, in so many different churches, 
falling away, okay? Uh, when we talk prosperity gospel, I'll settle there for a minute. Look what God says about false prophets, priests, false teachers back in Jeremiah 6. And, and they haven't changed. He's, he's addressing Israel at this time. This is thousands of years ago. But check this out. And this is Lakewood Church, obviously, Joel Osteen's church. But from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. So this has a lot to do with money. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound. What does that mean? They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The prophet Jeremiah goes on to say they should be ashamed for their deeds. They should be ashamed for their deeds. So this is what's going on. And this is why there's so much money in the prosperity gospel and in false teachers. We naturally have a conscience where it says here, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Your conscience, if you are a non-believer, and even if you're a believer, if you're in sin or sinning, it's wounding you. Your conscience hurts. You don't, you know deep down in your soul that God exists when you walk outside and see the beautiful sun and the trees. You know that you're living in sin, that you should turn towards him, but we just don't because we love our sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's uh, envy, whether it's just wanting to live in the world and get a brand new car, whatever your idol is, your conscience is telling you day in and day out that you will be judged for your behavior. And so there is a huge supply and demand. There's a huge supply of sinners, right? The world is full of sinners. We're all sinners. But for those who have not come to Christ, there's a huge demand for false teachers. And here's why. They want a smart man. They want an eloquent man. They want someone who looks godly, who looks like they're happy, who looks like he has it all. They want him to get up there in a suit and they want him to tell him it's okay. You can keep living in your sin and they will pay him or her billions. This is a billion, billion dollar industry. It is intense, guys. This is what's actually happening. It always comes down to this. They're looking to turn liberty into license. Jude warned this. True Christians, we've been set free. We don't desire to sin the way we used to. Now we're still fallen. We still fall into sin. But we've been set free from sin, Paul says. Non-believers, they want to soften that tone. They want a license. They want to use grace as a license to sin. It's very tricky because you can fall into legalism, thinking you did something for your salvation or your fruit is why you're saved. That's not true. There was a time where we all used grace as a license to sin or where we all just wanted to sin all day. But then you're born again. You're set free. And the way you're set free is because you have faith in Christ. And so you don't desire to displease him. In fact, now you desire to be righteous. You're set at true liberty. Okay? This is what's happening in America. We heap up these teachers. We pay them a lot. This is Balaam's error. This is literally Balaam's error 2,000 years later. The word of God is prophetic. God is the God of reality. What he says was happening then, it is obviously happening now. People are profiting off the word of God. Because if you just preach the word of God, you're only really going to attract the believers and people who are going to one day become believers. But the word of God, it pierces, it, it divides what we truly want, what we truly love. And so that's what I believe is happening. I think we're still seeing uh, the the you know, wages of unrighteousness, the prosperity gospel. I think it's all just all the way back to numbers. It's just like Balaam. And so this is what Jesus said. It's really clear. Therefore, repent, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So 
Now we're going to talk about that sword a little bit. But before we do, I want to talk about this word repent. This is what Jesus constantly says. When you're in sin, he doesn't just say, hey man, keep going on. Don't worry. I love you. Everything's fine. He always calls us to repent. In Matthew, 4, uh, in Matthew 3, John the Baptist starts preaching and he starts with repent. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 says, from that time Jesus began to preach. And the first word, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're out there preaching the gospel and you're not preaching repentance from sin, you're not preaching the gospel, okay? Matthew chapter 9 says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, but sinners to repentance. That's what he goes on to say. So you have to understand, he didn't come to call the righteous because no one's righteous. No one seeks God. He came to call sinners to repentance. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone. We've got to be gentle with people, and yet we have to be truthful, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting. We must correct error, his opponents, but with gentleness, that perhaps God may grant repentance. So listen, guys, there's a mystery here, but God grants repentance, and that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. This is true in scripture. This is true of God. It's also true experientially. God granted me repentance. And it happened, if you're seeking it, it happened when I started focusing on who Jesus really is. Okay? We're going to move on. So therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, who's them? Because I want to make sure I'm not, I don't want to go up against this sword, right? So let's talk about that. Who is Jesus going to war against, destroy, with the sword of his mouth? And let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. One of the first books of the Bible ever written, Job, talks about this. He says, I've seen those who plow iniquity, work out sin, and sow trouble, reap the same. By the breath of God, the rod of his mouth, the sword of his mouth, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. So it's those walking in sin, living in sin, plowing iniquity. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the Antichrist, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That breath of his mouth is the sword that comes from his mouth. It's the word of God. Isaiah, so, so we have non-believers, the wicked, being destroyed with the sword. We have the Antichrist being destroyed with the sword. Isaiah chapter 11 gives us a beautiful prophecy of the Messiah. 700 years before he came here, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. And Jesus, 14 generations after David, was of the line of David, right? So there's going to come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. 700 years, it's amazing, before Christ is born goes on to say, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So those of us who humble ourselves, those who are poor, right? We're poor in spirit, right? We have no righteousness of our own. We need Christ's righteousness because he will judge the world in righteousness. That's how he's going to judge it. Perfect righteousness, okay? He shall strike the earth with, here it is, the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So once again, the wicked are being destroyed with the sword of his mouth. And you see this all the way at the end of Revelation, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. It says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's the blood of his enemies. 
And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. We know that's Jesus because he's the Word made flesh. Goes on to say, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Here's the sword with which to strike down the nations. The nations literally at the time of the end will be gathered in Jerusalem to make war uh, against uh, the godly remnant and Jesus Christ himself. They will be led by the Antichrist and a coalition of nations with 10 kings. It will be a terrifying time and he will come. So we know that he's going to judge the Antichrist, non-believers, the nations with this sword. And this is what I want to explain. Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it literally discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have to really drill this in. It's so important. The word of God, your Bible, reads you. You don't read it. As you read it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. When the word of God rebukes you and you see that you're doing something against what God has written down, if you don't really believe, and this is what happened with me. I read the whole Bible and wasn't saved. I didn't really believe in the true Jesus. I didn't believe in the true God. And so obviously I could read the Bible and go sin and go live in sin and walk in that. Because deep down, I didn't believe. When I was born again, I believed. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to offend this God. I knew I wasn't saved based on not sinning. But I also knew I don't want to sin. I don't want to offend this God who's died for me, right? And so it discerns me. It's the only book in the world that reads you. So real quick, this sword judges the enemies of God. But it also protects the children of God. Be encouraged. It separates. The Bible says there's wheat and there's chaff. There's sheep and there's goats. There's good fish and there's bad fish. Jesus told these parables and then he says very clearly, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Guys, we need to make sure that we are counted with the righteous. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, one of his names is the Lord our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. We need to make sure we access his righteousness. And you do that by faith. But if you have true faith in Jesus, you'll be born again. You will repent of your sins and believe in him, and you will follow him, and you will become his disciple. Okay? Revelation 2.17, it goes on to say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I want to drill into that. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, really quick, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I went over that in my other videos, but I just want to just bring us back really quick. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why, do, why are you speaking in parables? Why are you speaking in mysteries? And he says, to you, it's been given. It's a gift to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To them, it has not been given. Okay. Then it also says we need to be overcomers to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. Every letter, to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, to the one who overcomes. I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone. We're going to talk about that in a second, but trust me, you want the hidden manna and you want a white stone because wait till I tell you about it. But how do we conquer? How do we endure? I went over this at length in my other video. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Jesus looked right at them and said, you must be born again. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And we all know that faith, by grace, we've been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So make sure you've received this gift. If you're worried about the intentions of your heart, repent, turn towards Jesus, literally call upon his name, beg him for mercy, beg him that you might be born again and have the gift of faith. But now let's talk about this manna a little bit. What's going on with this manna? Exodus chapter 16. We're all the way back in the Old Testament. You guys know if you watch my other videos, I love to do this. The God of the Old Testament has been revealing who he is for thousands of years. And 2,000 years ago, he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ like never before. But in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies and shadows of Christ. And today we're going to get into one that I love. So just some quick backdrop. The Hebrews are coming out. They've been delivered from Egypt. Now they're walking through the desert and they're really upset because they're hungry. And look what happens. They set out from Elam, all the congregation of the people of Israel. They come to the wilderness of sin. Now, this is near Egypt. It's a real location. But come on, guys. God is sovereign. He knew. Like, look at the typology here. They're in the wilderness of sin, right? We're spiritually in the wilderness of sin, right? We're still in the world. Come on. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they have departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation grumbles against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is what happened. Moses is essentially like the king, the savior. He's like a type of Jesus. Aaron's the high priest. And they're grumbling against them, okay? And this is what they say. They're starving. And so the Lord says to Moses, look, you know, Moses goes and intercedes. He prays for them. This is before they've gone to the promised land, obviously. And this is what the Lord says, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. And he really does this. He literally rains bread from heaven. The people will go out and gather a day's portion that I might test them. Okay, very straightforward. Goes on to say, the house of Israel called its name manna. So that's what this is. It's a literal bread, physical sustainment from heaven. But there's a spiritual meaning. We're going to get to that in a minute. Everything in the Old Testament was written for us, okay? Very few people for the last few thousands of years have been able to read the Bible like 21st century Christians. We're able to really dig in, okay? So the house of Israel called its name manna. It was white, like coriander seed. It, it was like a wafer with honey on it, okay? Every time I have a wafer with those little honey stroop wafers, I'm always thinking of manna. <laughs> and so that's what it was. It was physical bread from heaven. So after this, and you can read this in Exodus 16, they were commanded, okay? They're commanded by God to take a jar and put an omer, a small amount of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all the generations as the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Paul brings this up in Hebrews. He says, behind the second curtain in the temple, the tabernacle, is a section called the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God is. There's the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna. So guys, this manna is very, very, very important. It's in the Holy of Holies. Okay, God preserved this manna for all Israel to see and remind them how he provided for them in the wilderness that God is faithful and he will provide. But now look at the spiritual meaning of this. It's incredible. Jesus says in John chapter 6, the Jews are speaking to him, the unbelieving Jews, and they say, uh, what sign are you going to do that we may see and believe? What, what are you going to do that we can believe you? Then they say, our fathers, that always mean like back in Old Testament times, this is, you know, what's amazing is this manna story is written 1500 years before Jesus is born. It takes place even more than that. It's truly amazing. 
It says, our fathers ate the manna, the bread in the wilderness. As it is written in the Psalms, it says, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But then Jesus says, no, no, I'm telling you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, Jesus is not the father. This is a mystery. Jesus is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. God is eternal and infinite. He exists in all three, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, okay? But he is one God. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He says, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For, this is the spiritual meaning, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, no one has ever came down from heaven before Jesus came down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger and whoever believes in me will not thirst. This is better than physical bread. Reading the Bible is called our daily bread in the sinner's prayer. Not the sinner's prayer, the daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, I want food and I want sustenance. But I want Jesus. I want a real relationship with God, and I can only have that through, the, through Jesus, through the Jesus of Scripture. He goes on to say, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So they've seen Jesus. They saw the miracles. They didn't believe. Jesus then goes on to say, and this is a hard teaching, but we cannot deny his name. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, and this is beautiful, I will never cast out. In eternity past, before the foundation of the earth, the Father gave us to the Son. And whoever, whoever was given to the Son will come to him, and he will never cast them out. That means no matter what you've done, repent, turn to the Son, you will not be casted out. Jesus did not die for good people. He didn't die to make you a little bit better and improve your life. Jesus died for dead people, dead in sins, who have no hope apart from him to bring them alive. He will not cast you out. But the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? They're confused. It's a hard teaching. Many actually went away from him after this. Jesus answered, don't grumble among yourselves. Same words used in the Old Testament. They were grumbling about being hungry. He says, don't grumble. This is another hard teaching. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on to say, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is so beautiful. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Father leads us to the Son, and then we are born again because the Son will not turn any of us away. The Holy Spirit teaches us, and, and the Bible says clearly, this is what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's not a mystery. And as you're convicted about sin and convicted about sin and convicted about sin before you're born again, this can happen in one day, one hour, one minute. For me, it was about six to eight months. I was being led by the Father to the Son. I was reading the Bible with only a desire to sin. It was crushing. I'll go to Bible studies and just come back angry. I never felt forgiven. Finally, I cried out. I looked for that Messiah. I knew I needed a sacrifice. I knew I didn't have real faith because I couldn't stop sinning. I cried out and I was born again. And from that day, my life's been just totally different. Everyone doesn't have the same salvation story. But I was taught by God. I was convicted of sin. I came to the Messiah. Okay, those are the main parts of the story. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, Jesus said. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is so beautiful, whoever believes has eternal life. The righteousness of God is from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It is not of works. Come to him if you're laboring for your salvation. It is not of works. And yet you are responsible to repent as Jesus commands. But if you believe in him, you will. He finishes by saying, I am the bread of life. He is the manna. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, this is huge, for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, God became a man. The son of God, the eternal God from all eternity became a man. He came down from heaven like the manna and he gave his life for the life of the world. He gave his flesh. He gave his body. He was ripped open, torn open. Prophecies in Isaiah said he didn't even look like a human being by the time they were done with him. And that was nothing at all compared to what he actually took for us. He took the wrath of God for us. The lake of fire that me and you would, would pay for all eternity, righteously and justly that we deserve, he took that on the cross for us. In three hours, he absorbed the wrath of billions of his followers. What a, what a beautiful story. I mean, this is incredible. John chapter 6 finishes with, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's the whole goal of this channel. The whole goal of this ministry is that you would feed on Jesus, feed on the word of God, feed on the bread. And so you might have this question, right? The one who overcomes gets some of the hidden manna. So if Jesus is the manna, and I have this question, why do we get more after being saved? What does that really represent? Do we get more Jesus? Yes, let me explain. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, you also were included in Christ when? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who, and these words are key, he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when you're born again, you are given a down payment, probably a very, 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 very small percentage of what it will be like in heaven. You're given a down payment and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to who Christ really is and how amazingly valuable he is and how, how amazingly valuable the relationship with God is. But that's just a little down payment. In heaven, we're going to have the fullness of spirit. We're going to love God more than we ever imagined. We're going to hate sin. We're going to love each other more. We're not going to sin anymore. It's going to be truly holy and righteousness and peace and joy. 1 Corinthians says, now we only see a reflection as in a mirror dimly of Christ. But then when we're, when we're not just born again from the world, when we die and go to heaven or the world ends, when we're in heaven with Christ, we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I'm going to know Jesus like Jesus knows me. He knows everything about me. I'm going to know maybe not everything about God, but I'm going to know so much about him. Our relationship is going to be so much more and greater. That's what he's saying when he says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. He is the manna. He's going to give us more of himself. We're going to have a ridiculous relationship with God throughout all eternity. That's what we've been saved for. Thank God. 
finishes up in Revelation 2.17, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, there's just way too many interpretations of what this white stone is. So I'm going to give you my best guess, but I wouldn't take it to the bank. There's just way too many interpretations, but I think it's very straightforward. But rather than just give you an interpretation, I'll do it really quick. I want to point to some other verses that I think it's cluing us into. So I believe this white stone is literal. I think just like Jacob became Israel, Abram became Abraham, you'll get a new name when you go to heaven. It'll be personal. Only you will know it. It'll be between you and God. It'll be, you know, beautiful. I often think mine might be sarcastic, right? Like I'll get some kind of sarcastic name. And that'll be like, you know, a cute thing God does with me. I have no idea though, right? But that white stone, white symbolizes holiness. Many people think it'll be, back in Rome in that time, this is the most popular opinion, back in Rome at that time, the white stone with the new name on it, uh, not a new name, I'm sorry, but a white stone was given to you and you would go to a victorious celebration. That's what heaven is. It's a victorious celebration. That being said, here's some things we know from scripture. And this I find beautiful. We get a new name in heaven, guaranteed, right? Forget the white stone, we get a new name. <laughs> and on it, we only know that one, me and God. We're the only ones who know that name. Well, Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be made like him. And check this out. When he comes back in Revelation 19, we know it's Jesus because it's the word of God. But it says he has a name written that no one knew except himself. Guys, this is the whole purpose of being saved. And, and we're, we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. If that weren't the point, then we would get saved and drop dead and go be with Jesus, right? There's a point to why we're alive. It says in 1 Corinthians, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we're also going to bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus is the man of heaven. He is God. Romans says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Those people born again, truly love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Just like his son has a new name or a name that no one knows, we'll have a name that no one knows. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's the goal of life. It's to be like Jesus. There's no other goal. There's nothing else worth pursuing. It's to have a relationship with God through Christ and be conformed more and more and more to who Jesus is. That's how we become godly, like God. We become like Jesus, who is God. Finally, it says, those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, that's the gospel. He also justified. It's God who justified. And those he justified, he'll also glorified. We've been called. I pray to God we've all been justified. I pray we're truly born again. If not, repent and believe right now. But to those of us who are justified, he also will glorify. That's the only future tense that we're waiting for. Just like you lived in sin for a season and then were born again, you will live in this cursed body for a season and then you will die or the end of the age will come and you will be glorified. You will have a new body in a new heaven and a new earth and you will spend all eternity with Jesus in that glorified body and a glorified mind and glorified spirit and you will worship and enjoy God so much more than you do now. It's such a, a truly amazing promises that we have. And it's by these promises that we really set ourselves apart and pursue godliness. And so this is just one final verse has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's just an encouragement because I know some of these teachings are hard, 
can't deny the hard teachings, but this is an encouragement to the true believers. Look at all these promises. We're going to get hidden manna. We're going to get a new name. We're going to get a better relationship with Jesus. Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written just a couple hundred years before Christ was born. It talks about the day of the Lord. It says it's coming. It's burning like an oven. The wicked will be burned up. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness. This is before Jesus was born. Clearly, it's talking about a prophecy of, of his son coming shall rise with healing in its wings. Uh, the better interpretation would be healing in his wings. Then it says, and this is a final encouragement, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It says, in the day that I do this, you will go out. Many times throughout the Bible, it says we will jump and sing and clap. The trees will literally clap in the day of the Lord, the day Christ comes back for his saints. And that two-edged sword judges his enemies, but it protects his saints, guys. That's where the true happiness is. That's where the true protection is. And I can't wait for the day we go out leaping like calves from the stall, overjoyed in the Lord and what he has done. Guys, I, I just want to encourage you. I hope these videos that you appreciate it. Uh, go on my website, subscribe, go to foolishministries at gmail.com. You can email me any questions. Thanks again.